0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Can you all hear me? I hope. Um, You're very welcome to the lecture this afternoon. Uh, Just a few housekeeping announcements first. Uh, First of all, could I ask everyone please to make sure that their mobile phone is powered off. Second of all, uh, the emergency exits are the two doors behind you and this door on your left at the top of the room and the third thing is that this lecture is being recorded for podcast purposes, so if you just bear that in mind. Now, the second announcement I have to make is that the lecture today has been prepared for you by our colleague, Nolig O'Marrillagh, Ryan Gaeilge, National University of Ireland, Galway. Unfortunately, Nolig is indisposed and is unable to be with us today Present the lecture, um, we wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, but I, we have um, uh, been basically uh, been uh, taken out of our difficulty by uh, our other good colleague Paul Walsh, who actually will be delivering next week's lecture as well. And um, so he's working very hard for um, for us here, uh, but he has um, stepped into the breach and will deliver paul's lecture now our knowledge lecture i should say now just to uh, tell you um, just a very small bit about him um, he is a mayo man uh, by birth he was a student at the uh, maynooth university and he was a long time member of the Department of Irish in Galway, but he also worked at one stage in the Department of Irish in Queens. His magnum opus, I suppose, and the work for which he is best known, is his monumental life of the Walthough Macfyrbyshy and his edition of Macfyrbyshy's Lear Móir Na the great book of Irish genealogies. But um, he is an expert on the place names of Ireland. And um, he worked uh, for some time with the Ordnance Survey, where he was a colleague of our speaker today, Paul um, Walsh. They both uh, worked, to soldiered together, I suppose I should say, in the Ordnance Survey. So without more ado, um, Paul will now deliver Nullig's lecture which, the title of which he's changed slightly, translations the place names work of the Ordnance Survey in 19th century (laughs) Ireland. Thank you.
1: I have no problem with that. Um, again, just to reiterate what Siobhan has said, um, I know some of you are disappointed, no less than I am disappointed not to be sitting down there and listening to Nullig, um, whom I've known for many, many years and who worked in the Place Names branch. I used to work in the archaeology branch across the hall from him for for 20 years or so. So I knew him very, very well and um, I am delighted to have been, and honoured to have been asked to deliver his notes here today uh, so I'm reading from his own p- particular script. So all the words that I do say are those of Nullig o' Okay. Uh, the forms, whether Irish or Anglicised, of almost all Irish place names in everyday use, that is, apart from certain names found mainly in urban areas of streets, roads, housing estates, etc., have come to us through an institution that was a notable part of the British administration in Ireland in the 19th century. That institution was the Ordnance Survey whose achievements were significant although in certain respects somewhat controversial. Its story is a fascinating and often dramatic one and therefore, not surprisingly, has attracted the attention of one of our foremost celebrated playwrights, Brian Friel. His play, Translations, has won many plaudits. Certain aspects of the play may be deemed historically dubious but, as we shall see presently, the work does raise some pertinent questions. The survey began in Ireland in 1824, having been active in England since its establishment as a branch of the Board of Ordnance in 1791. And as the name indicates, it originally had a military purpose to furnish the British government with reliable maps that could be used in the event of a French invasion. By the time the survey transferred its activity to Ireland, the Napoleonic Wars were almost a decade in the past, and its principal purpose was now to provide accurate maps for the entire country. To help bring greater fairness into the levying of local taxes. Some of the maps being used up to that had been surveyed as far back as Cromwellian times in the mid 17th century and were often wildly inaccurate. The Ordnance Survey established its headquarters at Mountjoy Barracks near Castleknock Gate in the Phoenix Park. Mountjoy was originally built to house the Lord Lieutenant's cavalry escort. The overall head of the survey at this time was the formidable Major, later Colonel. Thomas F. Colby but for more than a decade and a half from the late 1820s onwards the man in charge of day to day was the young superintendent at Phoenix Park, Lieutenant Thomas Askew Larkham, who was still then in his late 20s. The work of the Ordnance Survey was preceded by that of the Boundary Survey under the direction of an engineer Richard Griffith who in the late 1840s and 1850s was to direct the general evaluation of Ireland popularly known as Griffith's Valuation, that indispensable aid to the Irish family and local historian. The task of the boundary surveyors was to determine the boundaries of the country's various administrative divisions, in descending order, counties, baronies, civil parishes and townlands. The last of these divisions, the townland, a quintessentially Irish denomination, was also the most numerous, with the country divided into a total of more than 60,000 of these units. What we now call a townland, however, is in many cases a rationalisation of a series of earlier divisions such as ballybows, Ballybetux, ploughlands, cartrons, tates, poles, pottles and so on. Once the townland's boundaries had been delineated, the next task was to determine the correct spelling of its name and this was where the ordnance survey came in. Colby, based on his experience with the survey in England and to a lesser extent in part of Wales, laid down guidelines as to how the form of name to be engraved on the new maps would be decided. His instructions appeared in a work called The Blue Book, which was issued to survey staff in 1825. And under number 33, he records, the persons employed on the survey are to endeavour to obtain the correct orthography of the names of places by diligently consulting the best authorities within their reach. And under 34, the name of each place is to be inserted as it is commonly spelt, In the first column of the name book and the various modes of spelling it used in the books writings etc are to be inserted in the second column with the authority placed in the third column opposite to each at first it was thought that the same guidelines could be used in ireland but work on the irish maps was not long underway when it became clear to larkham and his assistants that they faced a severe problem which would necessitate some modification of the guidelines as they started work on two ulster counties antrim and her they realised that many of the townland names were problematical, with a wide range of diverse spellings in use. The great majority of the names were, in terms of linguistic origin, Irish. And some of them, and in other parts of Ireland many, had never been written down, either in Irish or in anglicised form. Many, too, had been mangled by generations of English-speaking settlers, as John Andrews has put it in his book. The survey staff, most of them monoglot English speakers, were totally unfamiliar with the language spoken by a large proportion of the population in those decades leading up to the Great Famine. They were ill-equipped to deal with such names or to decide between variant forms. To remedy the situation, Larkham decided he must learn Irish and accordingly went in search of a suitable teacher. The story goes that while walking down Sackville Street or Connell Street today one day, he saw a sign over a door which said the Irish Society. Thinking that this body might furnish him with lessons in the language, he called in only to learn that the society was engaged in evangelical Protestant missionary activity. They did, however, give him the name of a young man who might be able to assist him. Aged 22, just five years younger than Larkham, he was a native of South Kilkenny who had been living in Dublin for about a decade. His name was John O'Donovan, and this fateful meeting was to change the course of Irish learning. O'Donovan's lessons for Larkham had not gone very far when the latter realised that by the time he had acquired even the basic fluency in Irish, the survey would probably have completed its cartographic work on Ulster, if not on much of the rest of Ireland. He therefore sought to recruit his tutor to the Ordnance Survey as a linguistic advisor. O'Donovan resisted the invitation and instead a noted scholar, Edward O'Reilly, was taken on. Unfortunately, the elderly O'Reilly died within a few months but not before he had shown that the post was beyond his capabilities. When approached a second time, O'Donovan accepted Larkham's invitation. He joined the survey as orthographer and etymologist at the end of September in 1830 and immediately placed the survey's treatment of Irish place names on a completely new plane. He was to remain in the Ordnance Survey's employ for the next 20 years and as a part-time employee for the rest of his life. A mysterious rift between O'Donovan and Larkham in January 1833 led to the young scholar leaving the survey. Unprecedentedly, he was accepted back eight months later, and he and Larkham remained firm friends for the rest of his life. The best explanation of why he was taken back was that, in his absence, the fledgling topographical department, as it became known, had descended into utter chaos. On his return, Odu- excuse me, O'Donovan made no secret of his contempt for the mess his replacements had made of the department. Having put things back on an even keel, and with the help of the recently appointed head of the department, George Petrie, with whom he was already friendly, he embarked on a dramatic new departure. Up to then, he had worked at survey headquarters in Mount Joy, Phoenix Park, studying and abstracting relevant material from a wide range of written material in various languages, mainly Irish, Latin and English. And we should note that all that time, the great bulk of the Irish material was to be found only in manuscript form. Having mastered the written sources, O'Donovan realised that he was neglecting what was probably the most valuable source of all, the oral evidence of people throughout the country, particularly native speakers of Irish who were intimately familiar with the place names. O'Donovan therefore set out in July 1834 to begin fieldwork in County Down. And over the next seven years, he spent a considerable part of each year traveling through county after county to collect oral material while returning from time to time to the office in Dublin to process and compare it with the written material he had already assembled from sources in the survey or in various Dublin libraries, notably those of Trinity College, the Royal Irish Academy, and Marsh's Library. Soon, he had a number of assistants, notably Eugene O'Curry, Thomas O'Connor, Patrick O'Keefe, James Clarence Mangan, and others who helped in organising all of the written material. Some of them in later years accompanied O'Donovan on his travels throughout the country. Incidentally, there were just three Irish counties in which O'Donovan did no field work: That was Antrim and Tyrone, whose maps were already in print by the time he set out in 1834, and Cork, which he was due to visit in 1842, but which he never reached because his request for a pay increase was turned down and shortly afterwards the topographical department was closed without warning by government order and all of the staff dismissed. Apart, that is, from O'Donovan himself, who was retained on a part-time basis. He continued to do work for the survey for the remaining 20 years of his life, even when he was appointed Professor of Celtic at Queen's College in Belfast. O'Donovan, while working for the Ordnance Survey, penned a truly staggering amount of material, all in a beautifully clear, very legible hand. Apart from scores of literary and historical texts which he transcribed, remember there were no photocopiers in those days, he annotated tens of thousands of pages in the Ordnance Survey parish name books. There are well over 2,000 of these small format notebooks covered in vellum, now preserved in the National Archives. Until about 14 years ago, they were held in the fireproof store in the Ordnance Survey in the Phoenix Park, where they had been since the 1830s. In most of these notebooks, he wrote down in pencil Irish names of places as recorded from native speakers of the language, and later inserted a more standardised form of each name in ink, accompanied by an English translation, and sometimes with additional information. Mention should be made of the fact that O'Donovan in his travels often had to suffer the nuisance of local experts, quote-unquote, who might recommend utterly impossible Irish forms. For example, a man man in Leitrim called Old Quinn tried his patience with a series of ludicrous suggestions. Eventually, he wrote in exasperation in the name book, Old Quinn, Old Goose. (laughs) The most celebrated productions by O'Donovan during his years in the survey were undoubtedly the so-called Ordnance Survey letters, or O'Donovan letters, which he wrote conscientiously from every part of the country he visited. He addressed them to Larkham, or sometimes to George Petrie at OS headquarters. While in later years O'Connor, O'Keeffe, O'Curry penned some of the letters, the great majority were from O'Donovan. Sometimes he wrote two and three letters a day or a night, for frequently he was penning the letters from often inadequate lodgings long after midnight. The letters are significant for a whole variety of reasons. They contain a great deal of information not only on place names and family names, but also on antiquities scattered throughout the countryside and on aspects of Irish social life in the 1830s, as well as snippets of folklore, passages translated, almost always for the first time, from the Irish annals and genealogies and from various medieval Irish literary texts. Their greatest importance, however, lies in the fact that all of them were penned less than a dozen years and some less than half a decade before the Great Famine, and often from areas that were then Irish-speaking, but from which the language and even the very people were to vanish a few years later. These wonderful productions in O'Donovan's intimately lively, iconoclastic style, full of fun and knowledge and strong opinions, are among our greatest national treasures. The originals are preserved here in the Royal Irish Academy and nearly a century ago a team led by the Roscommon priest, Father Michael O'Flanagan, produced a laboriously typed written copy of the entire collection so as to make them available to a wider audience. At the moment, Professor Michael Herity is in the process of publishing magnificent printed edition of the letters arranged county by county. To date, the letters of 20 of the 29 counties have appeared and it is devoutly to be hoped that the remaining 10 will become available over the next few years. That, then, is a very bare outline of the remarkable pioneering work on Irish place names accomplished by O'Donovan and his brilliant companions under the auspices of the Ordnance Survey. In the remainder of this talk, I want to say something about the methodology of the survey's topographical staff and how they sought to apply Colby's guidelines as interpreted by Larkham. There are, of course, questions to be posed about the survey's operation. For example, how culturally just, quote unquote, was their approach? Did it injure the Gaelic tradition? And what alternative approach could have been adopted? If one is to assess the impact of the survey's work on the body of Irish toponymy, it is worth considering the various possible approaches. Should an attempt have been made to give the place names in the then correct Irish forms? This is arguably closer to what was done later in Gaelic Scotland or in Wales but not altogether satisfactorily according to authorities on place names in both these countries. And should the insertion of the Irish language names have been done only where Irish was still spoken by the majority of the population? If so, how could this be established, given that the first census in which a question about language occurred was that of 1851, a decade after the completion of the Ordnance Survey's first edition? Or was the approach adopted, namely to give the names in anglicised orthography while ensuring that the forms printed were as close as possible to the original Irish, the only feasible one at the time? Of course, in the celebrated play Translations by Brian Friel and in the writings of various authors, such as Terry Eagleton and Stifan O'Caha, one gets the impression that the survey's treatment of Irish place names formed part of a grand imperial plan that was meant to harmonise, standardise, colonise, and thus civilise, the British Empire from end to end, from Ireland to India, from Africa to Australia and New Zealand, and on to Canada. And objectively speaking, there is an element of truth in this, although it does not seem to have been in any way as organized or pre-planned as that might suggest. But it is quite certain that men like Colby and Larkham saw themselves as bringing the benefits of modern civilization to Ireland, together with canals and roads, and very soon, railways and a comprehensive national census. (laughs) Ireland would also have the benefit of the most detailed set of maps yet produced for any country in the world. The entire island had had its portrait drawn with scientific accuracy on a larger scale than was yet available even for the other countries of the United Kingdom. And of course, the vast majority of those in authority in Ireland in both church and state considered that this modern civilization could only be expressed through the medium of the English language. The likes of Archbishop John McHale or other promoters of the Irish language and its literature and culture, like Philip Barron and John O'Daly, were very lone voices indeed. Even Thomas Davis, who propagandised on behalf of the language and sang its praises, never learned Irish himself. And of course, he wrote his famous ballads, A Nation Once Again, The West's Awake, Clare's the Grooms, etc., all in English. And O'Donovan and O'Curry, who could both speak and read a greater range of Irish than most of their contemporaries, corresponded with one another in English and spoke to their children in English. It is justifiable to ask a question, as Sifon O'Chaha has done, about O'Donovan's use of the often derogatory colonial terminology, such as Aborigines, Kaffirs, and Hottentots in relation to the native Irish. Was he just being ironic or sarcastic, or was he buying into the imperial mindset? It is hard to be entirely certain. But we should recall that O'Donovan tended to be acerbic about all of his fellow men, and men uh, rather than people is the appropriate usage here. And he is sharp in his judgment even of his own immediate ancestors. Unlike Eugene O'Curry, he is invariably scathing about Daniel O'Connell, but did not, uh, from a pro- did not do so from a pro English point of view. He appears to have been very friendly with Thomas Davis, whose funeral he attended. And while initially critical of John Mitchell and continuing to deem his actions rash, he spoke of him in terms of admiration as a second Emmet. One thing is certain that if we, the old Irish slaves, do not emancipate ourselves now, we must remain slaves forever. In that same year, uh, in, he declared this in 1848. And some years later, he advocated that Ireland demand justice with the tongue or fist or sword. And of course, soon after O'Donovan's death, three of his sons were sworn into the Fenian Brotherhood by O'Donovan Rossa and had to be released from Mountjoy Jail by their guardian, none other than Major General Thomas Larkham, then Under Secretary for Ireland, whose responsibility it was to suppress Fenianism. Queer uh, ironic turn of events. To return to the question of the Ordnance Service treatment of Irish place names, It must be stated emphatically that it did not go in for translation on a wide scale. In fact, hardly at all. Instead, it sought to render the names in a version which, in the words of the great historian of the Irish survey, John Andrews, uh, and i quote from John Andrews' book, came nearest to the original Irish form of the name. This was an attractive compromise between the empirical and the antiquarian. It was rational, scholarly, and practical. It also showed a well-intentioned deference to the Irishness of place names. If we compare the OS map of 1838 covering County Mayo with the great map of that country surveyed between 1809 and 1816 by the young Scottish engineer William Bald, we find numerous instances of townland and other names given in English form by Bald, some of which are given in Irish form albeit in anglicised orthography by the Ordnance Survey. In other cases the translation to English had already occurred by Bald's time, and the OS simply followed suit. In every instance that I am aware of where Bald has an English form and the survey a semi-Irish one, it is Bald's English form that prevails down to the present day. The OS form will often not be recognised even by people who live in the place bearing the name. Some of the instances from uh, Bald um, are, are displayed here on the screen. Um, for instance, in Bald, he has Rookfield, whereas um, the OS has Sleafne uh, Brachan, And again, Bald has Clarkfield, the OS has Clunna from Clunna And again, Bald has Iceford, and again, the Ordnance Survey has Iceford, or, excuse me, Belanira, on Ira. And likewise, there are other instances of, of similar names. For instance, Bald, for instance, has Newtown Brown, whereas uh, the OS has Kiltamach, uh, from Kiltamach, and here the OS form has prevailed. But there, where Bald and the OS agree, for instance, where you have Hagfield, um, Midfield, Stonefield, Greenwood, Musicfield, Trout Hill, and Midgefield, all of them in agreement. Um, however, um, Bald sometimes uh, would have something like Whereas the OS has Peter Salmon's Cove, an instance where Bald has an Irish form and the OS in English, and the latter is the one that is used today. And this was not restricted um, to these names, but also occurred in other counties as well, as is evidenced by the two other names on display here, uh, relating to Fairy Mount and Sugar Hill. On the question of the Ordnance Survey's manner of dealing with Irish place names and their, Anglicized, or sorry, and their alleged tendency to translate them into English, we should note that the story of the treatment of place names through the medium of other languages used in Ireland goes back a long way. For example, some of our earliest Latin texts, such as the seventh century accounts of the lives of Saints Patrick, Bridget, and Killa, illustrate the problem of how to handle such names. A variety of approaches was adopted. One was to translate the elements in a name that were deemed transparent. And so we get such forms as, for instance, from Latin forms like Insulae uh, Vase Albae or the Insulae Vitulae Albe, the Inish Boffin, the Inish Again, Mons Lapidum for Schlieve League and the wonderful Vadum Duarum Avium for Snom da or as Flan O'Brien memorably rendered it, Swim Two Birds. Then there are numerous instances where only part of a name is translated usually the element that is clearest or in technical terminology most transparent. Thus one gets, for example, uh, campus Mire, the plain of Mead, Maumie, or Mons Mist, the mountain of Mez, Schlieve Misch, and Vadam Clea, the ford of Wattles, or Aach In the last instance, however, the semi-translation is puzzling, for surely the word Clea would have been just as comprehensible to a 7th century writer as the word Vadam. Coming to the Viking period, we find Norse names, quite a small number in fact, applied to places that already had well established Irish names, and most of the new names had no connection whatsoever with those they were meant to replace. Hoth and Benader, uh, for example, Wicklow and Kilmanthon, Wexford and Loughgarman, Waterford and Port Larga, Strangford and Lochcuin. Other names were Norsified versions of Irish names, such as Difflin for Duvlin and, uh, I won't pronounce the next one, for Limerick. Not very different from the process of Anglicisation adopted by the Ordnance Survey nearly a millennium later. And then there is the intriguing Viking name of Lachlop, apparently the furthest inland of all such names, meaning the Salmon Leap. It was later Latinised as Saltus Salmonis or Salmonum and Gaelicized as Laman Bradon. Whereas in English we get, not a translation, but an anglicised version, slip. If time permitted, I could say something about how speakers of Norman French handled Irish place names, but here again the approach is not qualitatively different from that of the Latinisers and the Norsefizers. Before them are the Anglicisers after them. And that the Anglicisation process was in train long before the time of the Ordnance Survey. In the calendar of Tudor fiends, for example, there are tens of thousands of Irish place names spelt in various attempts at an anglicised orthography. While on the mid-17th century maps of the Down Survey, there are many thousands more. In this context, we may recall the words of the decree of Charles II in 1664 to the effect that the barbarous and uncouth names of places in Ireland much retard the reformation of the country, and directing the Lord, Lieutenant, and Council to change such names into others more suitable to the English tongue, annexing the ancient names in every grant so altered. And so we come to a question that is sometimes raised. Had recognition been given to O'Donovan's Irish language versions, as was written in the name books, rather than to the Anglicized versions that he recommended, could they perhaps have stemmed the decline of Irish in the later 19th century? And what would the result have been had the Irish forms been used on maps of areas from which the language had already vanished? The most honest answer is that we just do not know. Incidentally, we may note that Thomas Davis, after heaping praise on the achievement of the Ordnance Survey, suggested that whenever these maps are re-engraved, the Irish words will, we trust, be spelled out in an Irish orthography and not barbarously as they are at present. But what acceptance, one wonders, would such versions really have received among the general population? There are, I think, a couple of pointers that suggest that acceptance might be very limited or grudging. We have already seen in the persistence in Mayo of English forms that were in use at the time of Ball's Map and how the Ordnance Survey's attempt to hold back the tide by using likely anglicised versions of the Irish name forms was an almost total failure. And we may note how the anglicised name forms of some 3,000 post towns throughout Ireland, that is, sites of post offices, whether towns, villages, or tiny hamlets, that were brought into use by the post office after its establishment in 1812, have held almost unchallenged sway until very recently. In fact, the decision of the government to replace these forms with the Ordnance Survey forms in accordance with the Place Names Act of 1973 led to howls of protest throughout the land as forms such as Dunló, Mulrani, Spiddle, Skull, in Ineskron, Lehinch, etc., were gradually replaced on signposts by variant spellings like Dunló, Malarani, Spiddles, well, Skull with a different, in Ineskron, Lehinch, respectively. These latter being the OS forms from the 1830s. Another hint comes from the Catholic diocese of Clare, situated mainly in counties Fermanagh and Monaghan, where some decades ago it was decided to give the official names of certain parishes in their Irish forms only. Thus, Bundoran became Maine, uh, Edenderry became Culmoreen, and Derrygonnelly became Boha. From my own observation, the first two are probably, or sorry, are still popularly referred to as Bundorn and Edenderry, while the last name is pronounced as if it were an English word rather than the Irish Baha. Indeed, uh, our last point, excuse me, uh, one last point to be considered here is the quality of the Irish forms established by O'Donovan. It has to be said that his was a most impressive, indeed a stunning achievement, especially for a pioneer who worked without the benefit of comprehensive Irish language dictionaries or grammars or proper editions of texts. At a rough estimate, perhaps as many as 75% of the forms established by O'Donovan are pretty correct, apart from the orthography needing to be regularised and updated, while perhaps another 10% could be deemed fairly close to the correct versions. That would leave an impressively small proportion of names, maybe 10-15%, to that may be deemed mistaken. So what would the result have been in the unlikely event that, nearly two centuries ago, it had been decided to print only Irish forms on the ordnance maps, whether in Roman or Gaelic script, and that is yet another can of worms. Imagine the reception such maps might have received in a a county like Tyrone, where the last native speakers of the language died less than 60 years ago, but in which some areas were planted and consequently non-Irish speaking, for the most part, over four centuries ago. And even had such Irish language maps achieved a measure of acceptance, what would the reaction have been to an attempt made in, say, the later 20th century to update the spelling, as was done in the 1950s with the introduction of the standardized spelling and grammar, the Kaijon ificule. Here, however, we are moving into the realm of the what-if history, of a kind we hear, say, in relation to the 1916 there is work enough for our historians to deal with what actually happened rather than what might have happened and what happened in the story of the ordnance survey in ireland and its work on place names particularly through the labours of that remarkable man john o'donovan is one that continues to fascinate and one that demands still further detailed research these are nollie's notes thank you
0: Thanks so much, Paul. I I think you'll agree that Paul did great justice